Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And on today's episode, we have a special guest. Let's tune in. Good afternoon and welcome to A Reason for Hope where we answer your questions from the Bible, worldview, Christianity, other faiths. As long as they're sincere and from the heart, uh, we would love to hear from you. I am, of course, uh, a guest host today. Pastor Scott is out today, and, and Pastor Sean is out, but Pastor Peter is in studio with me. And my name is Adrian Van Vactor. I am with Faith Search International. We have our headquarters in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I'm a Christian illusionist and missionary and so it's a privilege to be here in studio, pushing the buttons, fielding your questions here in the Reason for Hope studio. Uh, there are plenty of ways you can connect with us. Uh, please watch the live stream on Facebook. That's Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. The URL is CCF Tucson, I believe. And also we have a YouTube channel that we also live stream this daily broadcast. And that is a Reason for Hope on YouTube. You can also email your questions at a questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope at gmail.com. Uh, F-O-R, not the number four as it is on the background. And of course, you can download our app in the Google Play Store, as well as the iTunes sto uh, Store, where you can follow all the content that we share uh, from messages, including this daily Bible Answer broadcast. And uh, that's Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you do a search in those play stores, you'll be able to find that. And uh, with that being said, uh, we have uh, some interesting things to start off with. And Pastor Peter, let's take a moment to uh, pray. Sounds good. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the privilege and opportunity to be able to uh, answer people's questions and be able to take the, the hard time that uh, pastors take to study and learn and to be able to provide those answers to those who are asking. Uh, we pray that you'd give our words grace today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, <clears throat> we, you and I talked briefly before the broadcast, and you had a really interesting uh, subject that you wanted to broach uh, concerning education and whether or not Christians should really get involved in that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think most people are aware right now that our president just uh, not really signed into order, but made an executive order for giving large quantities of student debt. So it's spurred on the question of what is the value of education in our society? How much emphasis should we put upon it? And how much should we charge for it? Now, we're not going to answer a lot of those questions today. Right? We're not going to talk about the biblical perspective on if education should be uh, cost any money or if the president has the right to forgive such debt. But what we will talk about is the role of education in our ministry. So when you talk about ministry, whether it's evangelism, apologetics, whether it's preaching or even biblical counseling, the question is, is does someone have to go through some sort of official structured educational program or should they be led more by the Spirit? And that kind of brings us into two big, major categories of thought. On one side of the coin, you have people who say you shouldn't uh, preach education at all. Education is really not important. We should be preaching something that manifests within the working of the Holy Spirit, and we're 
actually taken away from the power of the Holy Spirit when we seek to educate ourselves. The other side will say, well, no, 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 like you can't actually do anything without having a particular amount of expertise. And so you shouldn't try to counsel, you shouldn't try to preach, you shouldn't try to do anything unless you have the specific credentials necessary to do such things. And if you're not credentialed, you're not qualified, and therefore you can't. So Mm -hmm. we're going to be trying to navigate this issue real quick, and I'm going to be playing a little bit of devil's advocate with you, Adrian, because this is a big part of your ministry. So there are a lot of Christians who would, as we talked about, would take kind of a anti-intellectual approach to ministry of all sorts. That would be preaching, teaching, evangelism, counseling, all that stuff. And they would quote passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness, in fear, in so much trembling. And my speech was not preaching, and my preaching were not persuasive words from human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And then later on in the same book, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1, now concerning the things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge, but knowledge puffs up and love edifies. So isn't it true, Adrian, that people who seek to be educated in this way are not very loving because they're only focusing on intellectual avenues, as well as the fact that they're denying power of the Holy Spirit to enable them to do this work? Well, <laughs> going to catch me off guard a little bit. I for, uh, we, yeah, I, I would say first look at the context of the text. So there's, there's the general conversation about whether Christians should be educated. So on the broader sense... We can talk about that secondarily, mm-hmm. but immediately I would say that looking at that text, when he says, think about the context, he just, you just read something about idols, mm-hmm. and this is 1 Corinthians 8, eight, eight. Verse so one. I'm guessing that the, this is that section of Corinthians that's dealing with eating meat sacrificed to idols, and <clears throat> the knowledge that he's talking about is I, as a mature believer, understand that idols are nothing and that meat sacrificed to idols is nothing and meaningless and and I'm not worshiping the idol but Paul's saying hey if you have the courage to eat I mean the the knowledge and understanding that all things are ex- are acceptable uh, as long as they're accepted with thanksgiving to God then I should not be condemned for eating regardless of the motivation of the meat preparer and so the knowledge is that I'm taking pride in that I know that eating this meat is not sin, it's not wrong, I'm not worshiping the idol. And what Paul is saying is that that kind of negligence of my brother who might not have reached that place where he's thinking his conscience isn't clear. And that's the one of the dilemmas that he's dealing with in, in Corinth is that some of what Paul called the weaker brethren uh, thought that it was a sin to eat any kind of food that was sacrificed to an idol. And Therefore, they would refrain. And so the person who is saying, no, 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 I know better. It's totally cool. I'm not acting in love towards my brother. I'm actually being not loving. And so what he's saying is that knowledge in this regard, in this context, puffs up. It doesn't do you any good. It says, look, I know the Bible better than you do. I know God's will better than you do. 
you're being ignorant and thinking that eating this steak that was sacrificed to the USDA is bad. And you don't, and, and so now I'm going to cause you to stumble and eat a steak <laughs> that was sacrificed to the USDA. Yeah. And, uh, and I've now caused you to violate your conscience. So right. I think that's what he's talking about as far as the knowledge puffing up. He's not saying that we should not pursue knowledge or have any kind of, in fact, the context shows that it's proper to have a correct knowledge of God's will so that we don't cause weakness in people's beliefs about whether or not it's okay to eat and drink certain things. Or he even talks about certain festivals and some people celebrate them, some people don't. And that really it's a, it's a matter of conscience. But the truth of the matter is, is that uh, eating food is really not that relevant as to who prepared it. So I don't know if that did I do an okay job responding to that? <laughs> yeah, I feel like so. I mean, what you're saying is that people who make that argument to give right, a blanket yeah. statement about Christianity that as a whole, we ought not to be educated, but we should just minister from whatever the Holy Spirit gives us. That's not what Paul is even talking about. Yeah, I would suggest that if that's the argument they're using based on that passage, it's an, it's an abuse of the passage you're taking out of its context. Not only that, but there's plenty of other scriptures that celebrate, encourage, and actually, uh, uh, God commands Christians, believers, his people, to value the role and life of the mind in mm. the life of the soul. Yeah, yeah. No, and I would obviously agree with that. So when you got a guy like the Apostle Paul, I think the interesting thing is, is that people on both sides of this argument use Paul as their example, which I think is kind of hilarious. So the people on the education side would say, well, yeah, but wasn't it the education of Paul that allowed him to do the work of an apostle? He studied under Gamaliel. He used his understanding of the Old Testament scriptures and laws in order to effectuate change within the Jewish community, in order to convince and convert many Jews to Christ, as well as to utilize his knowledge in order to help the Gentiles out. And then the first thing he did, once he got into the position of apostle, is take young men under his wing and to begin to educate them into what he knew, guys like Timothy and Titus. So we'll talk about that side in a second. But this anti-intellectual bias that can pervade Christianity, uh, do you see it often in what you do, that attitude? Yeah, and as a matter of fact, <clears throat> quite often... Uh, whenever you get in any kind of, especially when you're dealing with apologetics, and I deal with that just on a real broad spectrum, because I'm sharing the gospel to, most of the time, to people have never heard. And I remember going to South Asia, and my host picked me up at the airport, and they were kind of lecturing me on the things of what I should say and should not say. And, and of course, this particular host did not know that I had been to that part of the world many times and was very accustomed to dialoguing with college students and doing my presentation on college campuses. After every program, I'd always do a Q&A. And, you know, predominantly Buddhist, Hindu, a lot of Muslims in my audiences. And, and so I, I had some experience dealing with that. And his attitude was generally, just talk about the love of Jesus. Focus on that. And I'm not saying that he was wrong, that we should not highlight in our presenting of the gospel or teaching the love of Jesus or the character and person of Jesus. But what he was implying was is that to try to uh, reason with my audience about the truthfulness of the Christian faith versus the other faiths that were being represented in my audiences, that that would be foolish. So in other words, if I'm bringing you 
intellectual arguments. I can't accept what you're saying because isn't it true that the Bible has been corrupted a billion times? Why should I believe it as a source of truth? That your role in that case would be to just be like, well, Jesus loves you. But Jesus loves you. And right. do you know, but have you, do you know who Jesus is? You know, right. that kind of thing. And, and I'm overemphasizing the seemingly ridiculousness of that approach mm-hmm. as far as most of us would realize that you would just answer the person where they're at. Uh, you know, First Peter 3.15, be ready to give an answer for anyone who asks you to give an answer for the hope that lies within with gentleness, kindness, and respect, or gentleness and respect. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, and, and he made the argument from Acts 17. He, he explained to me how Paul just said, um, let me tell you about this unknown God and he skipped all the context of the passage, and he, 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 I can't remember what part he emphasized, but in the Mars Hill exchange where, where Paul was dialoguing with them and telling them that, I see you have an altar here to an unknown God, and there was a part, there was a line that Paul said, and this, this pastor, this host, said, well, that's the approach we should take. Let's just point to the love of God and and." You could see how we're not going to try to convince people or debate people or to reason with people, you know, because that's not, not what Paul did. Paul just pointed to God, and that's it. If you read the passage in its, it's entirety, exactly the opposite it's the opposite of No, absolutely. Yeah, uh, the Acts 17 passage is used by many apologists to give them a format of how to do apologetics. Because what Paul does is not only does he spend days prior to that encounter, most people just focus on the encounter where he gives his little speech, but it actually says he spent days prior to that reasoning with them in the marketplaces, meaning that he spent actually a good length of time talking to these people. And and the word uh, reasoning, by the way, is the word dialogamos, right? So he wasn't just talking at them. He was listening to them. He was trying to figure out what do these people think? What do they believe? And what you see in Acts 17 is the culmination of what he had learned, right? Now, based on what I've heard from these people and where I understand their hearts are at, I'm going to address their concerns. I'm going to show them that God fills all their concerns and actually makes sense of what they have believed in nonsense, right? And, mm-hmm. and the lack of sense, which is the tomb of the unknown God. So a uh, really, really fascinating passage. But Honestly, like me and Andrew would be the first to tell you that people can go the opposite way, though, and be mm-hmm. so fixated on facts and reason and logic that they are completely uncaring and unempathetic mm-hmm. to the people they're talking to, right? Where I'm talking to you and I don't really care where you're coming from and I don't really care what your name is or what you're thinking. Yeah. And, and that's the opposite <clears throat> of being sensitive to the needs of others. And that's really the heart of this this argument that people might use is that they're not totally incorrect, but the heart of, of the spirit of what is being communicated here is that, um, you know, as one of my apologetics professors said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, and that the greatest apologetic that a Christian could ever demonstrate or, or, or live out is genuine love by its adherents. And that's the number one apologetic. Jesus said, they will know you're my disciples because of your love for one another. He didn't say, they will know you're my disciples because how good you are at arguing for the Christian faith. Mm. And so there is a balance to the the need for uh, a, the, the rational mind in the Christian life, mm. but at the same time, the the lover of our souls demonstrated grace and patience. And, and so in this situation, Paul is saying, look, it's better for you to keep your knowledge to yourself, even if it's true, uh, for the sake of your brother's conscience. So that means that your love for his or her needs supersede how right you are. Mm. And so 
that's a relational side of the of the equation but that does not negate our responsibility to be uh, mindful of the truth in fact i when we talked about what we might cover today i i just whisked through some passages and i i grabbed the book off my shelf that really impacted me on this subject early in my christian life it's a, a book by J.P. Moreland called Love Your God with All Your Mind, The Role of Reason in the Life of the Soul. And I just wanted to read a couple quotes about this anti-intellectualism, now that we've clarified that that's not really what we're talking about in this passage. But uh, <laughs> right. He points out, he says, For many, religion is identified with subjective feelings, sincere motives, personal piety, and blind faith. As the song puts it, you ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. In other words, we test the truth of our religion not by a careful application of our God-given faculties of thought, or even by biblical mandates, which we can cover some of those in a minute, but rather by our private experience. Mm. For the most part, theoretical reason is just not part of our local church life any longer. We often hear it said in church that we don't want a discussion to get too theological. We want to keep it practical, as though good practice did not require careful thought to direct it. Hmm. We sing, in my heart, Lord, be glorified. But when was the last time you heard someone sing, in my intellectual life, Lord, be glorified? Hmm. I would say that even though I read this in the 90s, Hmm. this is still a fairly fair assessment by and large, of Western Christianity. Hmm. Oh, absolutely. And I could even think, like, uh, when he's communicating that, I, I think about when I started on as a pastor and began to have to teach sermons. And a weird thought kind of crept into my mind. I don't know where it came from, because obviously Scott's my pastor, and he doesn't follow this methodology at all. Right? But this weird thought kind of came into my mind of, like, man, if I want to be really spiritual, I just need to not even study the passage and I just need to get up there and let the Holy Spirit work, you know? And obviously, every sermon that I gave when I had that attitude was terrible, you know? <laughs> this is just like all over the place. My thoughts weren't collected, and therefore no one could really follow my line of reasoning. I didn't realize that the reason why I'm up there teaching, as opposed to just having people just say like, hey, just read this on your own. Just go home and read it, yeah. you know, is because God is going to utilize my unique experience and my unique perspective in order to highlight certain aspects of the passage through the uniqueness of my life, right, the uniqueness of yeah. my ministry. But that means I have to study it. That means I have to start applying it into my own life mm. before I can apply it to yours, right? So I have to study it. I have to fill myself up with this kind of knowledge. And mm. it reminds me of Proverbs 25, verse 11, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of mm. silver, right? A word fitly, it, it has to fit, right? There has to be a content to your speech before it can have an effect, right? If all it would take was a name mm. babble, and then God could just convince anyone's heart through supernatural resources, then there would be no need for evangelism to begin mm. with. Everyone would just be convinced by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I remember sitting in a hermeneutics class at International School of Theology in Arrowhead Springs, and the professor uh, started the class by saying, you know, reading the passage about the Holy Spirit will guide you on to all truth. Mm. Do not worry about what you will say. Mm. Those scriptures yeah. uh, spoken to the apostles when they're going to be, you know, Jesus said, you're going to be dragged before governors and leaders and do not worry about what you will say, but the Holy Spirit will give you what you need to say. Mm. Something along those lines. And, and he said, and of course, this is a, a hermeneutics class, the art and science of biblical interpretation. And he said, and then on the screen on his overhead thing was saying, uh, why exegete when the Holy Spirit will guide you to all truth? Mm. And it's a really 
simple but profound question. If the Holy Spirit will, in fact, guide us to all truth, and exegete means to rightly interpret a passage, uh, and, you know, why do that if the Holy Spirit will guide us? Why study, you know, like, First Timothy uh, 3.15, study to show yourself approved, mm. a workman able to rightly handle the word of truth. And if that's what Paul is telling a young pastor to do, right. then clearly we're not quite understanding the intent of what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit will be guiding you what to say, and that this Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. Mm. So obviously we're, we're, we're taking some things out of context, and there is a kind of a balance between the intellectual life and the emotional life, as if they were somehow two separate things and right. not connected. Right. So I'm going to kind of mention a little thing about Calvary, and then I'll let you kind of talk about something very cool that your ministry is doing uh, fitly, <laughs> given the times that we're, we're going through. But uh, in Calvary, the way that we've taken this is that Chuck Smith did not require. So I people ask me sometimes, well, like, what Bible college did you go to? What seminary did you go to? And I'll say, I didn't, I didn't go to any. Now, that doesn't mean I wasn't educated, though. What Chuck Smith really emphasized was he emphasized what uh, modern-day people have really forgotten. And this is one of the major issues with the universities that people have seen in America and in the West as a whole, is that back in the day, education was really only reserved for those small sections of labor that you needed a robust education in order to perform. Things like being in medicine, right? Being a doctor, things like that. Uh, being an engineer, being inside of certain science, scientific practices, things like that. But the vast majority of things that you would do, the vast majority of occupations, you have to learn on the job. That's the only way you're going to learn. So they did something called apprenticeships. You would actually go and apprentice with a master for a long period of time, and they would teach you how to perform the job, and they're educating you while you're working. Now, that's the Calvary model as I experienced it. So when I, was, when I came on staff and I was just functioning as a volunteer and then I was being discipled by Bo, he was educating me. He was taking me along. He was allowing me to minister with him in the youth ministry. He was allowing me to go through his sermons. He was talking to me about the Bible passages he was exegeting and why he went the particular ways that he did. Right? All these things were educating me on the job, but it was utilizing an apprenticeship approach. Now, that doesn't mean I don't read. Like, obviously, I read quite a bit, actually, and that is very important for supplementing my knowledge base and for understanding not only church politics, but also how to be a better minister, how to counsel more efficiently, things like that. I'm always trying to become more proficient at my job mm. because I think that's the way that I honor God and not just being a lazy minister. But what what is it that your ministry is doing right now to help with this kind of gap between education? Yeah, our, our uh, founder, President Dr. Don Byerly, he's a PhD biologist and he was a skeptic, uh, you know, didn't he didn't disbelieve in God, but he was a, a skeptic and thought that religion was a, a crutch for the weak-minded, that it was an emotional need, and that you couldn't be an intellectual person, because he was a star athlete and a brilliant student in mm. his high school, college days. He was just that straight and narrow kid. And uh, in fact, we just did our, our live stream Tuesday, where he shared a little bit of his personal testimony. So if you do a uh, search for Dr. Dom Byerly on Facebook, you can listen to his testimony of how how he was humbled by God in that intellectual pride that he had. But then he met a couple PhD students who loved Jesus and thought that uh, you could be a completely honest intellectual and be a Christian. And he was shocked, and they 
kept giving him challenges, and he would go and study, and he'd come back and dialogue with them back and forth, and eventually he realized that that he had a false caricature of faith, that faith is an emotion rather than something that's very closely tied to to reason. And uh, so as a result, we started, he started a ministry over about 43 years ago, as we've been running now, and has shared the gospel with evidence to tens of thousands, I mean, millions of people have come to our presentations. And uh, the idea was that the heart cannot accept what the mind rejects. That was the sort of one of the fundamental premises, one of our uh, core values, is that if you're going to challenge the lost, the unchurched, to consider Christ, you first have to give them the reasons why they should believe in Christ. And these reasons should be logical, should correspond to reality, should cohere, and uh, should be historically accurate. And so in our presentations, we talk about the reliability of the Bible, why it makes sense to believe in a creator by using intelligent design argument, and, uh, and so on. And, and we go into archaeology, and so everything has a logical progression. And, and what we have noticed, especially Dr. Byerly, having uh, spoken in so many churches and different denominations throughout the last many decades, he went to seminary and became a Bible college professor, and that was the same thing that he struggled with, is this anti-intellectual sentiment in the church, uh, as if truth and reason did not matter. It wasn't that it was just neglected. I could understand uh, people just neglecting, because it's work. It's work to study. It's work to learn to think critically, to learn how not to commit logical fallacies when you're dialoguing with someone, and we do it all the time. We, we actually make really bad contradictions and use really bad reasoning when presenting why we believe, and so that is a a, a negative on the world's perception of who Christians are. And so out of frustration, he's uh, continued pushing through doing this ministry as a church-assisting ministry. Our idea is to come alongside churches and provide some of those needs. And recently we uh, started working on starting a school uh, called the Discovery School of the Bible. And uh, we're still still in the process of putting together all the courses and what we want to put on there. But the idea is that it's a lay school. So it's not something that you can uh, get college credit for, but it's college level or just below college level, and it's free. So the idea is that if you want to have a deeper, a more structured learning environment that you wouldn't typically get uh, just attending a Sunday service on occasion, unless you go regularly. If you go here, then you probably would, but but uh, because, you know, even our church here is, is rather unique. I've been to a lot of churches, and we spend way more time talking about the role of the mind and reason and, and defending the faith and apologetics than I have seen most churches do. And it's not that we don't preach to the to the heart and the will and everything else. It's, it's a very well-balanced, well-rounded church. That's why I attend here, <laughs> and that's why I love it. But if you're interested, you know, just keep an eye on, uh, we have, you can go to our website, faithchurch.org. Uh, we're hoping to launch sometime this fall, late fall or winter, and uh, it'll be a really neat uh, set of courses where you can just kind of get a deeper dive 
into the Bible. Yeah, and while you're talking, I was thinking about how the ancient people thought of faith in the first place. So in modern days, we tend to think of faith because we've bought into the atheistic line that faith is believing in something in the absence of reason. But the ancients didn't think of it that way, right? Faith for them was a virtuous behavior, and therefore you can fall into one or two categories of vice. You could either be a skeptic in which too, you have too much reason and not enough faith, meaning you have a, an embarrassment of riches when it comes to reasons to believe something, mm-hmm. and you're still resisting that belief. Then you're a skeptic and you're being mm-hmm. a fool. But then if you have too little reason and too much faith, then you're naive, and you're someone who could be taken advantage of. Mm. So what actual faith is when it's practiced in a virtuous manner is it's the requisite amount of trust and the requisite amount of evidence. So it has mm. to be a proportionate dynamic there. So as Christians, we don't want to be naive people. And there's a reason why a lot of people, and uh, you know, not to call out anybody, but there are a lot of people in these more anti-intellectual denominations and bends that tend to go into cults, right? They tend mm. to be fodder yeah. for cults. And it's because they don't, they're too naive. They're willing to accept things without reason, and therefore they're willing to accept just about anything. Yeah, and I, I, I wonder what your thoughts are on the flip side, the extreme intellectual side. Mm. I've seen uh, people even say to me they things like, "I can't ever do ministry with you," and I thought, "Why?" And they said, "said because I, I well, they thought I was a synergist." <laughs> mm. Well, it's because you're a synergist, and you know you may not know what that means, but immediately I thought, really, something that sort of secondary and uh, on the peripheral mm. uh, and and using that terminology just shows that there is a uh, uh, a puffed upness right. and and I know that God that I believe in synergy uh, I'm sorry uh, I'm a monergist so right. the if you don't know the background uh, a synergist is someone who believes that God's will and humans will work in tandem sort of two sides of the coin in order to bring about salvation of a human being. So God ha- did his part, and but human beings have to do their part. And so it's like this, this dual working together that God would like to save everybody, but he can't unless we agree. And so that's syner- uh, uh, synergy. A monergist is someone who says, no, 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 it's all God's will, and human's will has nothing to do with it because our will is corrupt and we're dead. And so that's just the background of, uh, and you guys have covered Calvinism versus Arminianism and God's sovereignty and how it relates to human freedom and what level of humans, uh, what level of the human will is actually free and versus being completely bound and dead in, in the sin nature. And so with that kind of... Uh, approach to, I mean, that kind of reaction to me, I thought, I just, I was kind of taken back. I was sad and hurt Mm. because it was a personal friend. It wasn't just someone that I had met and and we started talking about theology. It was a a personal friend, and I just was surprised that they wouldn't even be willing to minister with me, like on a mission trip or something, just in light of the fact that they thought I was a, a synergist. synergist. Yeah, yeah, no, and absolutely. They've actually done studies on this where they've used to believe, and this is something, again, that Dawkins and Hitchens used to promote, that it was like intellectualism was going to rule the world, that the people who were the most intellectually elite were the people that were most rational, the most reasonable, mo- least likely to fall into any type of uh, disrepute or any type of fallacy. I wonder what they think about it now, that a lot of the scientific <laughs> community doesn't like them because they don't believe in the gender theory that's pervading 
navigating the, the educational world. But at any rate, uh, that was their belief system. But many studies have been done, and actually the opposite is true. People who have high IQs, once they accept something as true, it's almost impossible to talk them out of it because mm-hmm. they lean so heavily on their intellect. Once they've been reason, once they believe that they have enough reason to believe something, mm-hmm. once they're in it, even if you present them with enough information to reasonably talk them out, they won't, right? They won't mm. believe it because they have already accepted it via their intellect. Uh, beyond that, you know, you and I were talking off air about how there's a, a genuine perspective in our country when it comes to the experts. There's this trust the experts kind of ideology where it's like, well, I'm not qualified to do this. And as a counselor, what I always tell people is like, really, all my job is, is to help you integrate better with the real resources that are going to help you one hour a week with me isn't going to do much you need to be able to integrate with your friends and your family Mm -hmm. those people who are with you all the time and are hopefully leading you in a good path and there's something broken in you that's disabling you from doing that i'm just here to help break up that dross a little bit Mm -hmm. and get you moving with your real community that's going to save you right that's the whole idea and but a lot of people they're like well i try to talk to my friends and family about this and they say go see a counselor Right. There's this go idea of go see an expert. It's like, man, I'm not qualified to talk to you about this. You need to talk to someone else. And how many Christians do you think won't evangelize even to their friends because they feel unqualified to mm. give a reason? I, I can relate to that. I, I used to take great. And that's what really when you have when you take pride in your intellect and your knowledge, it's not that the knowledge itself is bad. It's that, that you rely solely on that and not a living relationship with God, I've fallen into that trap because I was always being hammered by students on college campuses all over the globe. I remember I was in South Asia one time, and I the guy uh, raised his hand and was just dialoguing with me, and he was a professor from Oxford. And I thought, <laughs> oh, wow, I'm way out of my league. I, I've taken Bible college classes, but I I'm a I'm a college dropout. <laughs> you know, I spent my time just being on the mission field, uh, dialoguing with people in real life. And sure, I would have loved to have put the paper on the door and or on the wall and say, yeah, I actually completed my degree in this and that. And uh, and but in the end, I think that the studies I did were more practical towards the needs that I had. I wanted mm-hmm. to learn how to communicate to a Hindu. You know, how to communicate to a Buddhist. How do I share the gospel with this person and respond to their objections? And whenever I got an objection that I felt that I didn't adequately handle, I would hit the books. I would study. I would try to read books on philosophy and logic and try to understand how to argue with someone without being argumentative. In fact, uh, one of my most life verses, I guess you could say, but one of my most inspiring passages, Second Corinthians chapter 10, mm. where... Paul describes how the world fights and how the church fights. And he says, we do not fight like the world does. Mm. Yes, we have weapons to demolish strongholds. He says, we do not fight as the world fights, but we have weapons that demolish strongholds or fortresses, depending on which translation you're reading. He says, we demolish arguments Mm. and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, taking every thought captive and making it obedient to Christ. Mm. Now, when I was first became a believer in my late teens, early 20s, I um, thought that that passage always meant taking my own thoughts captive. And Scott uh, addressed that a little bit yesterday about how to have a, a pure thought life and a, the right mentality and pursuing 
the fruits of the spirit, mm. and it was a really good, a really good uh, exchange and, and good dialogue. But uh, um, I always thought that taking thoughts captive in Second Corinthians chapter ten meant keeping my own thoughts captive. But Paul's not saying that. He's right. saying contextually, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking, yeah, he's taking <clears throat> their thoughts, the world's thoughts, their ideas. We're taking them captive and demolishing them. We de- he says we destroy them and we make them obedient to Christ. So that is a hefty charge. Yeah, absolutely. And a huge responsibility. Yeah. I like this uh, quote here from this book again. This is one of the pre- uh, this was the president of the United Nations General Assembly, Charles Malik. He says, "I must be frank with you, the greatest danger confronting American evangelical Christianity is the danger of anti-intellectualism. Hmm. The mind in its greatest and deepest reaches is not cared for enough. Hmm. Well said. And uh, one last thing I'll say about intellectuals, and then uh, we'll move into the questions. Sure. But uh, Roger Scruton, who was a famous uh, philosopher for years and years, ended up converting to Christianity towards the end of his life. Really bright guy. He was asked in a forum why he feels like so many of his friends became more on the left side of politics as well as on the atheistic side of religion. And he said intellectuals like a world that they can understand and in which their intellect is going to help them save it. Mm. And he says Christianity denies them both. It gives them a world that they can understand parts or facets of, but there are many things that we don't understand about the workings of God, and we have to trust and believe that God is sovereign over these things that we can't understand, things like the problem of pain and suffering. Mm. And he said also Christianity gives us a perspective of a God who will come back and fix the world's problems, and an understanding that humanity in their own strength and will will never be able to do that. So it is actually an offensive message to people who rely purely on intellectualism. Hmm. So wow. uh, re- really interesting uh, thoughts. But at any rate, let's get out to your questions. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm on uh, our Facebook stream here, and I do apologize to everyone. Um, I didn't realize that the, uh, the mute buttons were pushed on the mics. We had done a mic check and I was just kind of reading and and so I apologize the very beginning was uh, the audio was cut off and that is uh, my fault but um, so I think that kind of set a bad taste in folks mouths about <laughs> uh, are we going to be able to take any questions at all but yeah. uh, I haven't seen anything yet you know I I was uh, covering with Dr. Byerly we do a weekly live stream we just did our 83rd episode it's been kind of fun wow. just co-hosting with him and various topics and um we, we decided to, uh, a couple weeks back, do a Knowing God presentation, just a simple gospel message. And part two was us uh, kind of sharing our personal testimonies and dealing with some of the most common objections to the gospel. I don't know, I'm just, I just came up with this idea on the top of my head until we yeah. get a question. But uh, I, I went and did a little reading and thought, what, what do I remember <laughs> in my touring as, a, as an evangelist and a missionary? Uh, what are some of the most common objections? Hmm. And so I came up with a list of 15, not that we would handle all of them, <laughs> but... Um, Maybe. Um, and I know that A Reason for Hope has covered these questions 
time and time again very well, but I thought, you know, there's always new listeners, and not everybody goes uh, to the catalogs and, and listens to every episode from, you know, two, three years ago, or even last year or last remembers month. all the answers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I'm going to just take a quick look at some of these and see if there's one that really has always stood out to me as one of the, you know, there's God's existence, the theory of evolution, how do I know the Bible's really true, or errors in the Bible. Sean, you and Sean have been covering a lot of the supposed contradictions or supposed errors, uh, Jesus's uniqueness, all paths. Um, you know, that's probably a good one to mm. try to tackle. Uh, what about those who have never heard, or how about um, don't all faiths eventually lead to the same place? And this ties really well into this subject of the role of intellect and reason mm. in our ministries, not just in our own walks with God, but in our ministry. If someone were to say, well, I really appreciate what you're saying, and I really appreciate you focusing on this love of Jesus, but um, aren't we all trying to get to the same place? I mean, does it really matter? And, you know, how would you respond to that hmm. if you were holding on to this love builds up, knowledge puffs up perspective? Right. Yeah. So if I was holding specifically to the idea that, um, you know, love builds up and knowledge puffs up, and I'm just like, I'm not going to be very intellectual with you right now. Um, I would probably maybe avoid the question or I'd probably just say like, well, you know, Jesus does love you and I hope you come to a relationship with him. Now that, that as a starting point actually isn't too far off from how I would actually answer the question though. So how I would actually answer the question is to say like, well, God desires a loving relationship with us and a loving relationship is between you and another person. Right. And so when you have a personal relationship with someone, there are boundaries and confines that dictate that relationship. So the reason that my marriage is so special is that it is exclusive. There is no one else in my life that I treat like my wife. That's what makes it special. If I treated many different women the same way I treated my wife, not only would it devalue our relationship as a whole, but it would take away anything that is special about it. So what we believe about God is that we use this word called holy. There's nothing like God. He is totally unique unto himself. And so if you want to have a relationship with the holy God, the perfectly unique, one-of-a-kind God that exists, you have to know him. And so if I were to say to you, like if you were married or, or if you had someone that you cared very much about, whether it's a child or a friend or something like that, and say like, are their attributes fungible? Meaning, can you just change them on a whim and expect the person not to care? So if I come home to my wife and I say like, well, you know, like I, I kind of want to think of you more as uh, like a polyamorous person. I, I want to change the dynamics of our relationship a little bit. I know you said that we ought to just love one another, but I don't like that anymore. And I think that you would want, you would want to actually have sexual relations with other people, don't you? You know, that trying to change her would again be something anyone listening to that dialogue would be like, you're being abusive. Right. You're, you're putting you're projecting your values onto somebody else and insisting that they agree with you without a dialogue. Right. So if I'm looking at God and saying, well, God's morality is really fungible. You know, this religion says that God says that this is wrong. This religion says that this is right. And who's really to say, well, if God is a person, that means that he has certain strictures around how he wants to be related to. And why would you deny God something that you wouldn't deny any human being? Right? If you would call that abusive for me to insist on a set of rules and values mm -hmm. on somebody else without their consent, 
why is it wrong for me to do it to a human and not wrong to do that to God, mm. right? Same with attributes. You know, if, if again, I come home to my wife and I'm like, hey, honey, you know, I know that I married you looking like that, but I'd really like you to get a lot of plastic surgery and just become a totally different person. You know, like you're kind of short for my taste. You know, maybe I'll give you some implants to make you a little taller. You know, I don't really like your hair color. Maybe let's dye that black. And, let's you know, transition you into <laughs> a Sports <laughs> Illustrated supermodel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, just my taste and you have changed. Once again, everyone would be like, that's offensive, right? That's Mm -hmm. abusive behavior to take someone that you love and insist that they only model to attributes that you like and to insist that those attributes that they have are not a fundamental part of who they are, right? So if I'm looking at God and saying, well, you know, the Muslims kind of look at God as a being who is only unipersonal, and he relates to people as a master does to a slave. And the God of the Bible is more of a loving, relational God who doesn't relate to us like a master to a slave, and he's tri-personal. And you know the Hindus, they believe in many different gods, and they're also pantheists, and they believe that God is in everything. So, I mean, what's really the difference about Mm -hmm. that? That is, again, taking attributes from different perspectives of God and placing them on God. If it's wrong to do to a person, it should be even more wrong to do to God. Mm. And that's why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And John begins his gospel by saying, no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has Mm. revealed him to us, right? Mm. We don't get to choose, pick and choose the attributes of God we like and dislike. If Jesus was a real person, He lived the life that we say that he lived. He died the death that we say that he died, and he rose again. Then he has revealed God's attributes, character, and morality, and we can't change that based on our whims. Hmm. That's good. A little more exhausted than I I probably would have got. (laughs) But I, I, you know, what's interesting is in South Asia, when I started my ministry, I spent a lot of time there and then expanded to other parts of the world. But uh, in, in the religion of Hinduism, it's very all-embracing. And so people didn't have a problem with me talking about Jesus. And if I had taken that sort of anti-intellectual approach to just talk about the love of Jesus, uh, and I'm not again, I'm not discounting that approach. I'm not saying that we should not talk about the love of Jesus. Right. Of course, that's the heart of the gospel is God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But right. that being said, um, <clears throat> Hindus had no problem nodding their heads and raising their hands saying that they wanted to believe in Jesus. No problem. Mm. It wasn't the believing in Jesus that was the issue. The issue was not believing in the other 330 million deities available to them in the pantheon of Hinduism. Mm. And any path could be a path. And so when I would get these kinds of questions from students, I would simply say, well, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to God but through me. If he's saying, I am the only way, the question is, was he telling the truth? Because if he's incorrect, then we need to take Jesus out of that list of 330 million and exclude him. But if he's telling the truth, then you need to take the 330 million and exclude them. And then I would also point out that truth, by definition, is exclusive. Mm. All world religions are superficially the same. Someone might say, like when you were sharing, I thought, well, we're not talking about morality. We all kind of agree. The golden rule, be do unto others as you'd have them do unto yourself. We're all basically good people. We're all basically the same. Don't murder. Don't steal. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, but what you're trying to tell me is that me simply believing in Allah in my mind 
which is not a, a moral or immoral or a, it's a amoral versus Krishna versus you know Brahmin or whatever. <laughs> uh, how am I uh, offending God morally? I mean, we're all trying to, we're living the same moral life. Yeah. We're both trying to be spiritual people, and I'll get this a lot. God and I have an understanding. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I have a, a connection, and they personalize it, experientialize it, and take away the logic of it. And so I typically, when I deal with that sort of thing, I just say, well, truth is exclusive. All world religions fundamentally contradict one another. Mm. And two things that have you know, the contradict both cannot be true at the same time. So truth matters. Reality matters. Yeah. If I, uh, I would share sometimes a story of this uh, individual who I was uh, going to eat at the pizza. Oh, no, it was KFC. We were going to the KFC. That's where my host always wanted to take me because I was this American guy. And they're like, well, let's take him to KFC. And I thought, no, I actually love Indian food. But uh, we would go to the KFC. And he said, look at that guy standing over there. And I said, yeah. And he said, you see what he's doing? I said, it looks like he's praying. He says, he is praying. I go, there's nothing there. He's like, there's a snake that lives in that wall that he's standing next to. And he's praying and worshiping that snake. Now, how could you see a person devoting their life to standing in front of a wall and not agree that that is very contrary in practice and in worldview to someone who believes that God is transcendent and eminent and does not reside in any created thing, that he is the actual creator himself, that we should not worship created things, and that that's an abomination to him and an offense to him to worship the creature rather than the creator. I mean, if my wife kept staring at other guys, I would be jealous. I would be offended and say, no, you devoted yourself to me, and vice versa. If I were to do that to her, it would be a tremendous offense to her. And so God is offended and uh, <laughs> considers it evil when we not only... It's not just because we're believing in something that's not Him, mm. but because it's not true that this thing that we're worshiping is divine. It's fake. It's a lie. Mm. And so truth really does matter. And that's usually the kind of the, the angle I would try to take is is just say, do you value truth? And sometimes I would come up with these interesting scenarios. There's a great one in this book. Um, if I there's a couple minutes, yeah, we have time. <clears throat> really great illustration. And he talks about this guy, J.P. Moreland, and Love Your God With All Your Mind. Uh, he, he names him Juan Mug. And he says, imagine Juan Mug was the worst math student that ever existed. He was horrible at math. And he struggled so badly that people had a lot of pity for him when he was just in grade school. Well, his teachers, parents, friends, all collaborated to get him to believe that he was good at math by faking his test scores, by praising him and making him think that he was actually good at math. And he goes on to progress in his life, his age, and his studies. And, he, and this, this collaboration continues to expand and grow to the point where colleges and professors are accepting him and praising him and giving him awards for his math skills, yet everybody knew that he was absolutely horrible and didn't have a single clue what he was talking about when it came to mathematics, or as they say in Australia, maths. <laughs> and, and, and so would you want to be one mug? Would you be content living a life that was completely fake, even though emotionally you were satisfied that, hey, 
me and God understand one another. Me and God, uh, we get it. So I feel good about it. All the while, I'm believing in a complete fabricated lie, even though all my church members are patting me on the back going, yeah, you're doing the right thing, being whatever religion A or B or C is. And I thought that was a really helpful illustration. And there's so many ways you could apply that, including the movie Matrix, which is a real popular one uh, that a lot of Christian apologists started using the idea of would you would you prefer to live in a fake world as long as you were anesthetized to the point where you didn't know what the real world was, but you were still at least at content? Or would you want to know the truth? Would you want to live in the real world? And, you know, so that kind of thing is I've always found to be really interesting in talking about the, the subject of truth and all paths leading to God and why does Christianity have to be so exclusive? Hmm. No, absolutely. And, you know, n- another way to put it, I like that you bring up math, is that, like, you know, math is very exclusive because math is one of the most definitive truth pursuits that we can have, right? You, you can, there, I don't think there are any other uh, realms of practice that you can have that get you to the level of certainty that mathematics does. But the thing about mathematics is that because it's so exclusive, we could actually do very specific things with it, right? So the reason why we're able to utilize mathematics in order to bring planes into the air, launch rocket ships, right? Bring satellites into the stratosphere and everything like that is because of the specificity of mathematics. So even though math is like a representation of things, right? The numbers that we're using on a page are representations. There's, uh, you know, the number two is a concept, right? It's something that we utilize in order to express truth. But if we get those concepts wrong, if we express them inaccurately, we can actually cause a lot of damage. So because, uh, Religion exists in the realm of the metaphysical, right? Meaning that it's things that we can't really touch or interact with. A lot of people think like, well, it's just in your mind. So what's the difference? Well, numbers are just in your mind, right? They're symbolic. But if you express them incorrectly, you could actually cause some real harm to yourself and others. And the same thing is true with the metaphysical world. If you believe something incorrectly about God, mm-hmm. what if that can and does harm you? And, you know, I like, I like when people say that, like, well, you know, all religions basically teach the same ethics. Uh, anyone who says that hasn't been around the world or studied history, like, at all. <laughs> like, there's mm-hmm. a base level of ethics that most people agree with that you listed, you know, don't steal, don't kill, things like that. But one of the main things that they disagreed about, and this is something that Jesus actually answers, is in the Bible there is love your neighbor as yourself. And one of the Pharisees asks him, who's my neighbor? That's the big question that separates almost every other religion from Mm. Christianity, where they say, yeah, these moralities, they exist for us, but for our enemies, for the people Mm. outside of our little tribe, all bets are off. Man, we Mm. can do whatever we want to those people, right? Sadly, that's true. Very true. And yeah, I, I sometimes would, on, on the same light, say something along the lines of, well, Jesus said that your eternal destiny rests on who you say he is. Mm. Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? Yeah. And if, his, if your eternal destiny rests on that question, then you better get it right when you yeah. try to answer. And every human being who's ever heard the name of Jesus will either intentionally or unintentionally answer that question. Yeah. Absolutely. We do have a, a question. We probably have time to cover one or two, maybe. Yeah. Depending on how quick you can rattle these off, Peter. Oh, we could do it. Bible answer man there. <laughs> uh, Jari wants to know if faith is the opposite of fear and if positive confession is biblical. 
Uh, yeah, so faith is not the opposite of fear. So faith is a virtue, and it enables you to conquer fear, right? So all fear is is the experience of an emotion, right? And the emotion usually is your body letting you know that something is out of your control, something is outside of your control, and it's you trying to get that thing within your control. So for instance, if you have a deadline at school, a paper due, you'll start feeling panicked because you recognize it's not in my control. I don't have this done, and I need to get it done. So fear motivates you in order to put that within like your control. Like I did control. before we started the broadcast, right. trying to rush to get everything ready, not realizing that the mics were muted. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So that's Now the, I'm fearing facing Pastor Scott. That's <laughs> <laughs> ah, in the future. No, but, uh, so what faith does is faith is a solid belief in something that is also outside of your control that enables you to control your fears, to act appropriately even when you're afraid of outcomes. So, mm. for instance, if I am afraid of death, right, which is a very natural, normal human fear, because I can't control that, but I have faith in God's sovereignty when it comes to my life, that faith and belief in His sovereignty will enable me to overcome mm-hmm. or to act, not react out of my fear, but to act in a way that is appropriate in spite of my fear. Um, so yeah, th- they're not at odds with one another. It is possible for you to be afraid of something and have faith. In fact, sure. that's the only way for you to appropriately activate your faith. Um, but anything well, you want to add to that? Every, every time I got off an airplane onto the tarmac and entered into a new country, you know, I there was a tremendous amount of fear because I knew that I was venturing to go into places that that it was illegal to do what I was doing, that people got killed for doing what I was doing. I remember doing outreach events in little village churches where we reached so many of the community because we had a unique platform to draw people in that uh, the next week we found out that the church was burned down and the pastors were getting beat up as a result of our being there. And I remember one of my uh, teammates, I would lead teams of artists on these trips. So I would, I would, you know, recruit them, train them, get them prepped, lead them on a trip. We would spread out into different villages, do our events and our presentations, gather back together and head back home. And one of them said, I don't, why am I here? I didn't come here to risk my life. And I was scratching my head thinking, what did you think we were doing here? <laughs> because, you know, there was no proselytization laws. And, and so we were breaking the law. And if the community got angry enough, they would come and get us. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, yeah, uh, fear is healthy. And faith definitely helps you overcome fear. But I like what you said, that it's not, it's not like the opposite. That's right. And, you know, Jesus, when he was about to go to the cross, you have to remember, he experienced fear, right? He experienced fear. Father, if it be your will, let this mm-hmm. cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he even sweat blood mm. in the midst of his fear. But it was his faith, it was his belief and his purpose that allowed him to overcome that and to do what was right. Mm. Well, I think uh, we have about 30 seconds left. The last part of that question was positive confession. confession is it biblical? And I would say that uh, having a positive attitude and, and looking on the brighter side of things is probably a good thing. But what's meant here is positive confession, meaning if I, if I say something that I, that I desire... It brings it into existence, and that is not a biblical concept. That is not what the biblical concept of faith is. Uh, Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, Look forward to getting your questions again tomorrow. Hopefully, uh, Pastor Scott will be here tomorrow, and we'll uh, talk to you then. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope.
A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.